0: Guilt is definitely an emotion that is present. There is just this kind of like, when can I do this? When is it okay? Do I have permission?
1: Welcome to Cringe Watchers, the podcast where we invite our expert friends to binge watch TV and talk about sex. I'm Lori Edelman. And I'm Layla Daraby. This episode, we watched Shrinking and asked
2: Ashley Reese, how does sex fit into mourning? Lori, are you binging or cringing?
1: I am a little bit of binge, a little bit of cringe this week, Layla. Are you following this Pornhub conversation at all? Only on Twitter. I've been hearing a lot about this on Twitter and other spaces. This Netflix documentary, Money Shot, The Pornhub Story. And I am very interested to watch it. I haven't gotten to watch it yet. It just came out. I'm curious if folks who are listening like have thoughts about this. I would love to hear them tweet at us. But apparently the woman director, actually, um, has framed out this as a little bit of like a feminist infighting conversation, sort of like pro and anti porn, um, sort of rehashing that in a new way um, that centered around Pornhub. I'm a little bit wary of that framing and the platforming that they do of some evangelical far-right groups, um, including the National Center on Sexual Exploitation, which is an anti-trafficking, anti-feminist group, and a number of other groups that are part of a coalition called Trafficking Hub that's trying to get Pornhub to go away. But it seems like there are some interesting points in the documentary. Uh, For example, they find that both anti- and pro-porn quote-unquote feminists featured in the doc, you know, kind of, have a similar critique around age verification and identity policies at Pornhub and the documentary basically lands on this place of like tech bros, surprise, surprise are the problem. And the money hungry stance of Pornhub is possibly like the most problematic part of the whole thing. Um, so I'm interested to check this out, but very, very wary, especially of the platforming of really dangerous groups and accepting them on their face at are quote unquote, feminist. And I just want to remind like our listeners that we here are all about kind of critiquing an overly simplified brand of sex positive feminism, like that's why our show exists. And we're really informed by, you know, just the idea that sex is neither the ultimate truth of ourselves, nor some sort of frivolous Um, idea or privileged idea. And that comes straight from feminist scholarship, people like Janet Jacobson and others. So, you know, this conversation is really very connected to why Cringe Watchers exists at all and excited to follow it. And one of my favorite feminists who's written about this topic of like specifically feminist infighting around porn is Amia Srinivasan. We've talked about her on the show in the past. If you haven't already, I definitely recommend reading The Right to Sex. It's both an essay and then later a book that she wrote that is a collection of essays, including the original essay on The Right to Sex. And it's just so good and so sharp. And so I would, if you have to, choose reading that or watching this Netflix documentary, I definitely would recommend reading that.
2: I think we might need to do a documentary at some point on cringe watchers because my binge slash cringe of the week is also <laughs> similarly a doc series. Are we on theme with our binges and cringes? I think we're very much on theme. And actually your discussion of taking the porn industry to task and and the feminist critique or support for porn is uh is on brand because I'm I've been watching Uh, like every other Sarah Lawrence alum in the country and around the world, Stolen Youth, this series on Hulu that that goes into the sex trafficking and sort of cult recruiting scandal that happened on that campus. Very fitting because when I was at Sarah Lawrence, and I believe they still do this, we would have one week every year called Sleaze Week where people would debate the porn industry and and have sort of sex positive panels and discussions and um, very uh, raucous parties. I once saw Slee's Week written up in Gawker by Dory Schaefer as the thing that almost won Sarah Lawrence the title as most annoying liberal arts college in the country,
1: beat out <laughs> very slimly by Wellesley and for some other reason. It's dubious distinction, but okay.
2: <laughs> I'm being glib just to kind of take the ick off of having watched three full episodes of Stolen Youth, I highly recommend people watch it. It's a very produced documentary. I've seen it critiqued for being sort of overly produced. There's a lot of animation, bells, whistles, music. But as a friend of mine said, it starts with an MGMT song and it just instantly transports you to college or it did for me. And the series, if you're not familiar, is about this evil person larry ray the the father of a student at sarah lawrence who ended up living in a house on campus and slowly preying on manipulating and using and trafficking and abusing students whom he met through his daughter so he moved into his daughter's house on campus and uh, you should watch the series to see the full extent of what happened. I first read about this scandal, like many people in New York Magazine, there was an incredibly reported article written by a Sarah Lawrence alum who was at Sarah Lawrence at the same time as these students. So had a lot of inside track and paired up with a veteran reporter. They're featured in the documentary series. But the reason I think it's worth watching and the reason I've you know, been talking to you about it, Lori, is that it really is an interesting, portrayal of sex trafficking i think because working in global health it is so easy to paint a, a young foreign exploited otherness on that term sex trafficking it's something that happens to people in other countries to people in other places from different backgrounds and what you can see from this documentary is that even in the hallowed institutions of privilege a manipulative force can pick off the weak. And so uh, I thought it was a very interesting redefinition of abuse and and who's at risk and who gets to be safe. Uh, You know, you would assume sending your kids to college that in campus housing, there there wouldn't be a middle-aged man living on their couch, setting up uh, presentations and using, you know, military tactics to sleep, deprive, brainwash and abuse them. I won't get too much into what happens in the documentary, but I do think for me, one of the things that I've been talking about with other alum of this privileged institution is what the profile of the people who fell victim first, or the survivors who were first recruited by this guy, looked like, because the, the students who were most susceptible seemed to be people whose backgrounds were most different from the privileged uh, majority of of the campus so it's Sarah Lawrence is a school that prides itself at the time of this documentary students and at the time that I responded to their slogans the slogan of the school was we are different so are you and that attracts a very specific sort of person that really appealed to me it's this idea of being outspoken and rebellious and artistic and quote unquote different but not so different that you're alienated as a youth and if you look at the documentary you see that The the people who were first uh, and most manipulated by this guy were the people whose backgrounds were most different and who in interviews recount how out of place they felt and how unprepared they felt compared to their privileged Uh, classmates to speak up and voice opinions and just live without consequence. There is a privilege to rebellion because you can be very rebellious if there are no consequences to getting caught. And so you really see how the working class students who are there on scholarship don't have the safety net that everyone else seems to have. And therefore it is very appealing to them, or maybe more appealing to them to have this father figure come in and and kind of guide and, and shape them. And so I'm projecting a lot here, but those are the things I'm thinking about. When we say sex trafficking, what is the image that pops in our head? Uh, when we say cult and cult survivor, what is the image that pops in our head? And, and I think this documentary does a really good job of breaking it down just to the human essence of what makes us vulnerable and who can step in. And I know you and I have talked about how this is a college campus conversation happening nationally. You know, who, how are we diversifying universities and and what does it mean to to create safe spaces for intellectual openness? And we'll put some links in the show notes. But there's also a very interesting debate happening at Wellesley College, which, like yeah. Sarah Lawrence, was a formerly uh, all-female you know what does it mean to even say all-female college? But uh, Sarah Lawrence at one point was not co-ed, and right now Sarah Lawrence accepts people of all genders. Wellesley College currently accepts cis women. Trans women and some non-binary students and the students of Wellesley have voted to also accept all non-binary and trans men identifying students and the administration is not having it it's a very public debate about what it means to have sex segregation in schools why would we want that? Uh, why would we want to tear that down for some and not others? And so that, you know, the Wellesley debate is, is unfolding, but I think is emblematic of conversations across the
1: country. Mm, so much to unpack there and like some incredible experiences that you've had that I think make it really interesting to hear your perspective on this. And I definitely am going to check out and Youth and have been following the Wellesley conversation really closely. Actually, I wrote at Feministing like over a decade ago now about some of the early conversations about including trans women at women's colleges. And, you know, it's somewhat heartening to see that sort of Most of them at least have moved on from that conversation. It's sort of a given that trans women are welcome, um, at least at the policy level. But now there's sort of some really, to your point, really um, important and interesting conversations coming up about what is the next level of inclusivity um, and accountability look like. So really fascinating. We did not mean to get so heavy and so deep (laughs) on this topic in particular, especially because the show that we're covering today is actually a pretty light show considering the heaviness of the topic that it is about. Wouldn't you agree, Layla?
2: Definitely. It's one of the things that appeals to me most about this show.
1: Yeah. And so we, I think, got the perfect guest because we found someone who is, you know, really fun and super interesting and like a great content creator, but also is going through something really serious. So... We want to just thank Ashley Reese for being our guest this week. We've been following Ashley's journey online as many people have of actually losing her husband to cancer. And it's been just A horrific loss for her. We're so sorry for her loss. We talked to her in a really raw and candid way, and we were so privileged to do so. She's been so generous and not only sharing her story with us, but with the world um, so soon after losing someone. I think it's been just three months, she said, um, since she lost her partner, Rob. And she's also been sharing about this online quite openly, and she has gained a huge following because her story resonates with so many people, either because they themselves have experienced loss or just because they connect to her and they relate to her. And we know that we might (laughs) all experience loss sometime in the future. And it's really refreshing to hear someone just be open and honest about that. And this is not Ashley's like first foray into content. I've actually known her for a long time. She's been a freelance writer and a columnist working at the intersection of race, gender, and pop culture. You probably know her from her columns at Jezebel. And there's a really amazing article in Vogue about the wedding that she had with her partner after his diagnosis, and when they were both sort of fully aware that um, they didn't have long together, um, that really just gets at the heart of what community means, and shows how much of like a connector and presence she is in like arts and culture scene in New York City. So we'll put a link to the chat in that as well. But it was just a delight to speak with Ashley um, about shrinking because, you know, the fact that she was willing to watch a show that's about loss while she's going through that loss herself is just really, really kind of her and we're so appreciative of her.
2: Definitely. I mean, I'm floored that she agreed to do this. It was such a great conversation because it was, it felt less like an interview than almost any episode I think we've ever done. Because Ashley is so open and so Holistic in her approach to all subjects. So we we asked Ashley to watch Shrinking. We specifically asked Ashley to watch episode seven, uh, the Apology Tour. So Shrinking is a show about a therapist named Jimmy, played by Jason Segel. Uh, the premise is that he is recently widowed and he is raising a teen daughter, Alice. He uh, is a therapist who works in a small practice with a very good friend of his, Gabby, and his boss, played by Harrison Ford. And he has a, a tight-knit community around him that has watched him sort of hit rock bottom. And you can see that he is far from the perfect father, far from the perfect therapist. And it's one of the reasons I think uh, watching this show and and talking to Ashley about how well-rounded life can be and how unpristine grief and happiness family and community can be is that it's a very messy look it's not a saccharine show it starts off with a bang and it takes a very uh raw but sometimes hilarious look at grief and so i don't think you need to know much more the show is on apple tv plus it is created by jason siegel and also by brett goldstein uh who is plays roy kent in ted lasso and is all around a hilarious person uh, we highly recommend it.
1: And Jessica Williams is phenomenal in it. This is one of my favorite roles that she's taken on. And I think she really just brings so much to the show. And so we talk about that a little bit too in this interview.
2: I know if you take away nothing else from Shrinking, it's, I would like to know Jessica Williams in real life. I would like to know Gabby, <laughs> the character. I would like Gabby to be my therapist and my brunch buddy. And uh, yes. everybody will go watch Shrinking and tell us what you think. So let's get into our conversation with Ashley Reese.
1: Welcome to Cringe Watchers. Ashley, we're so excited to have you here. Thank you for having me. Wonderful. Well, today we are actually going to be discussing Shrinking, which is a new show on Apple TV. Actually, one of the better shows on Apple TV, in my opinion. And we're going to be specifically talking about season one, episode seven, which is called Apology Tour. We want to make sure that we're respecting where you want to go with the conversation. And we also want to let our audience members know as well that some emotional topics are coming up and specifically the topic of grief and loss and losing a partner is part of what the conversation is about today. So Ashley, please feel free to speak up and let us know if we're going to a place that you would rather not go or if you'd rather kind of redirect this conversation, that's totally fine. Right. But one of the things that I do appreciate about Shrinking is that even though it has this serious topic at its core, it's a pretty light show. It's pretty fluffy and enjoyable. It has some of our faves, including and especially Jessica Williams, who has a comedy background, obviously. And there's some pretty fun comedic elements going on with Harrison Ford, who you know I'd really love to see the side of him, as well as Jason Segel, who's more known for like Complete sitcom status. So it's kind of like a good balance of heavy and light. And we're just going to jump right into some questions for you, Ashley. Sure. The episode that we're talking about today, it specifically deals with the aftermath of an engagement party, which got pretty messy. There were lots of shenanigans going on. And One of the shenanigans that happened is that Jimmy, the main character played by Jason Siegel, whose grief explored throughout the series, ends up hooking up with Gabby, played by Jessica Williams, who was not only a very close friend of Jimmy's deceased wife, but also her therapist, so someone who knows His partner Tia intimately. And so we just wanted to kind of jump right in and talk about this with you. What are the expectations and etiquette around hooking up after losing a partner? Like they're feeling like lots of guilt and shame in this episode. Is that standard? And are those norms like the same for men versus women?
0: So I am a new widow. My um, husband Rob died in December. So that was three months ago now. And it's interesting because I've kind of delved into like widow Instagram and widow TikTok and all of those kind of different um, subcultures. And this topic does come up. And, you know, I've seen some people talk about it as kind of a definitely like it was very guilt laden, like, oh, yeah, um, you know, a month after my. Husband died. I like hooked up with a random guy at a bar and because I was just going crazy and like my emotions were all blah, blah, blah. And you know, I do think it's a very get laden thing. It's kind of like you wonder, like, oh, what's the appropriate, like the time in which I can explore other romantic relationships or even explore like a messy, weird bar hookup or anything like that. I do kind of assume the expectations are different for women only because I kind of think that. Not to be like, we live in a society, but we live in a society in which men are assumed to just have, you know, uh, or believed to just have a higher sex drive and just to be, you know, we grant them more leeway for different like sexual desires. And we just don't grant that same kind of thing to women, even though they exist in women just as much. So I think that guilt is definitely an emotion that is present, whether, I mean, with the women that I've seen in these different subgroups, and also in the show that, you know, in Shrinking, like, his character was very, very guilt-ridden. I mean, obviously because of the intimate relationship that guy had with his late wife, but also, I think probably the fact that he had a relationship with another woman in the first place. I mean, there is just this kind of, like, when can I do this? When is it okay? Do I have permission? Um, And I think everyone is different, which sounds so like kind of an easy way out of like talking about this topic. But in my case, you know, it's kind of funny because my husband and I got married right after we found out that uh, his cancer wasn't going to get any better. We got married like a week after he made the decision to start hospice. Our friends and family helped throw us an incredible wedding in our backyard. And in his vows, Rob said something to the effect of like, I know most vows aren't supposed to say this, but like you're going to find someone probably sooner than you think. And, you know, he really was encouraging with the fact, he's just like, I want you to find like, you know, love in your life again. I'm going to be able to have um, our kid through IVF. He wants our kid to have a father figure. He was very encouraging with the fact that like I want you to have, you know, someone in your life again. But I think for me, it's like, I want that too someday, but I think I would also feel, like, a little bit guilt-ridden about, like, like oh, is it too soon? It's, like, what, when is the right time for me to do that? Even though knowing Robbie would be like, whatever, <laughs> like, go for it, have fun, <laughs> you know? Guilt is a very, a very normal, I think, emotion. And I honestly think that because I had some conversations with my partner before he died about future romantic relationships, I feel a little less scared about whenever that happens. It's still scary.
1: Sorry again for your loss. This is incredibly generous of you to to share like your experiences with us. And I know a lot of people have been following your journey and, you know, relating in, in different ways. And it's just wild how little actually grief is talked about publicly. So really appreciating you.
2: Thank you. I mean, I came to your story through the story of your wedding, which is so beautiful and so well-documented and, uh, it really shows what a community you and Rob have of, of friends and support. So much of the show really centers around Jimmy and Gabby's friendship as, as kind of the heart of, of the show. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that came out in this episode and throughout the show is Gabby's room and space to grieve as compared to Jimmy's. It's an interesting tension in their relationship where, you know, he lost a spouse, but she lost a best friend and she lost him as a listener as well. It really, for me, pulls out, there can almost be a hierarchy of relationship to the person who dies. And you, know, you see that sometimes with celebrities who die and people very publicly wanting to proclaim and claim their relationship to that person. And then uh, with friends, I'm, I'm wondering what your experience has been if the people around you have opened up to you or have almost closed themselves off to leave space for your grief. And if you've experienced any of that tension that, that Gabby and Jimmy are experiencing like the spouse versus the friend.
0: One funny thing that happened actually during the funeral that one of um, my husband's longtime friends, he went to NYU. He had a bunch of friends from NYU that he was still friends with. He was actually in his uh, final year of law school when he passed away. And (laughs) there was this one moment where, you know, maybe like a week or two after the funeral where I was talking with one of his uh, friends from college and she was just like at the funeral it was kind of like a style where like people who wanted to speak could like you know speak and we had it at our apartment just kind of kind of like the wedding was it was just very you know intimate and formal I wanted people just to you know share their experiences their thoughts kind of that's what I think Rob would have liked and you know there were a lot of law school people there and who were sharing their stories and it was funny because when I talked to one of his college friends they're just like Ugh, I really need to say something because there are all these friends who like had only known Rob for a couple of years saying all these things and I'd known him since like 2007 and it was just kind of like I empathized with kind of her feeling of just like I knew him longer and deeper and a more you know different level but I'm just like peop- friendships are all different and unique they come to us at different times so like I empathize with her but I also was just kind of like everyone's still like a friend you know the interesting thing that I kind of anticipated and that's always in the back of my mind is you know one of my friends who is also a widow you know has said this any kind of book about being a widow or lost will say that you know there will be people who disappoint you and I think some of the disappointment I've had the most were f- are from people who have thought that they needed to give me lots of space. I think that everyone who grieves is different. Obviously, I'm not saying like I don't I don't want this to come across as advice to every single person who knows someone who grieves or is going to one day grieve. But um, for me personally, I like the idea of people reaching out to me and asking me that I'm okay. I don't like the, the idea of space, of someone giving me space in a time of grieving is just feels like silence and it feels like not acknowledging what's happened. I can need space, but I would. I also want to have, I want acknowledgement. There's. It's not like the two are like different things. I think that space for some people can equate to radio silence, unfortunately. And I think yeah. that unfortunately death is awkward for people. Death is uncomfortable. This is It's also uncomfortable for the people who are also grieving in their own way. And maybe their way of grieving is to disconnect and to not be as, you know, not to talk to me all the time or whatever. So I wanted to respect how they grieve in their own way too, but I don't find it personally helpful for me for people to be distant. If you want to give me space, ask me if I want space. I want at least some acknowledgement or some, you know, Hey, how are you doing? Or even if my response is kind of like, ah, I'm okay. Or like, ah, I'm feeling like shit because you know, what's interesting and what I found out from those like, you know, widow, like Instagram, widow, TikToks, are people talking about how year two is the worst. I hear like, oh, my God, I just started year two. It's as bad as people say. Then all the comments are like, oh, my God, yeah, year two is really bad. Like, oh, yeah, year two was my worst year. And I was just like, what? What's so bad about year two that couldn't be worse than year one? Like, year one fucking sucks. Like, how could year two be worse? And I would read up. And it's because year two is when people just kind of assume that you should have moved on by then. They kind of stopped checking in. There isn't as much acknowledgement of the fact that you're still, like, grieving, like, a deep, deep loss. And I think that in some ways is – that's just a different level of, like, pain and loss than losing your partner is. It's kind of sometimes losing the people who you thought would be there for you in this process. You're surprised by the people who kind of don't show up when you need them, but you're also surprised by the people who do. I've been really surprised by the people who have shown up in my life that I wouldn't have immediately expected to be the ones who were like, the ones who were like, go hardest for like, you know, making sure that I'm okay, making sure that I'm fed, making sure that my apartment's clean, like, you know, things like that, little things that people don't think about in the grieving process.
2: I have so many questions. Like, what is your corner of TikTok and Instagram that... Yeah. How does
0: being a widow change your algorithm? So I gained a lot of followers after my wedding video went viral. Also after Rob passed away. And I probably gained 50,000 followers in like a couple of months. Um, Some of those people include a lot of widows. And sometimes I just like click around on their pages and kind of see what they have to say. And some of them are like... I don't want to say like they're widow influencers. Like that sounds like so crass. But like some of them are in kind of an influencer space or are like, you know, known for the fact that they are widows and they like to help other people who are grieving. They kind of find me and that's how I find them. My whole algorithm is, in my opinion, luckily not just grief, 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 grief. It's still mostly like fashion, cats, and interiors. <laughs> I do interact with some of these people and I do kind of see what their content is. And But I don't make it my entire online life because I think that would be a little bit overwhelming for me. But there are people who do and I think that's good for them. That That's a comfort for them. But, but for me, I need it in smaller doses. I can't have my entire like algo be like, you know, widow thoughts or like, you know, like that feeling when, you know, you think about your late husband, I, I can't have that all the time. I think about that's in my own head all the time. That's in my own like brain algorithm. It's like my own brain al- is always just like, remember that time when your husband did that? Or like, doesn't it suck when, you know, that I have enough of that on my own.
1: <laughs> I am curious why you feel like the content did resonate with so many people um, because, you know, your story did go viral. And I think it in, in multiple ways on multiple levels, like I think some people are like, look at this, fashionable wedding um, and like loved how it was framed and it was beautiful and it was like really a cool uh, event. And then of course, some people are connecting to, you know, the emotion of what you're going through. I haven't done research on this, but I feel like there's more like widow influencers than maybe widower influencers so like what's happening there
0: <laughs> i think that also just ties into the fact that there's just like more women who are you know in that influencer space than men in general but maybe i'm jumping to conclusions but maybe it's kind of sad that there aren't as many like widowers who are you know sharing that kind of content because there's probably lots of men who would love to kind of see other men share their stories about that i've had some men reach out to me and i found it really touching and really like really just special to hear from men who are also grieving because I don't see that so much I think that with the wedding I mean I think that it was a combination of like oh this is like a cool thing that like I mean not a cool thing that happened it's like it's a shitty thing that happened but also like it's it's despite the circumstances it it was exciting that um a wedding came together in a week and was so beautifully done the friends coming together to help out thing like I had you know my friend who does stuff in costume design come over and help like alter Rob's too, because he lost a lot of weight from the cancer. I had, you know, one of Rob's friends from law school who did event planning in the past, like just did a lot of setting that up. I had, you know, friends come by with just like bringing a bunch of alcohol. One of Rob's law professors, you know, hired a professional, like celebrity, like florist. I wore my, like a dress that I just wear all the time. Like a friend who does makeup, who's like a makeup artist, just like, did a full beat because I was like, girl, I can only do a cat eye. Like, you know, it, I think it was just kind of like, I think people liked that element of it. You know, I got a tattoo of Rob after he died and that also went viral. And I think it's a combination of just people not seeing a lot of content like that, um, especially with from, from young people. There's definitely a novelty there. I, mean, I just turned 32. So it's, you know, you don't see a lot of young widows making con- I mean, I mean, there are a lot of us out there, but like, they're kind of in their own sphere. and i'm I've, I've been a writer for like a decade. I kind of have an audience already in like a some you know, respect. So I think it's kind of like, oh, this like writer suddenly going through all this shit. You know, I didn't like emerge from the depths of like, I don't know, some social media platform as like a grief influencer or anything like that.
1: well, I mean, and I think maybe because you were used to, and I have an ice cream truck behind me. so I'm curious about, like the attention. And if you at any point felt like policed or overanalyzed or if there was like a lot of commentary on like how you were grieving and like how you chose to handle that. Like you mentioned the tattoo. And I know one of the tweets that you had sent that I loved was how some people were asking you, well, like, how do you think a future partner might feel with you having that tattoo and you were kind of like, that's not the point, I don't care. And like, was that kind of the tip of the iceberg in terms of people analyzing how you chose to kind of embody your grief? I'm curious about that.
0: The funny thing about the tattoo is like, I think like, I definitely got like some weird comments that were just like some I don't want to repeat. Um, the goofiest one is definitely just like, oh, but what if you get married again? And I'm just like, okay, then I get married again. Like, what does me having a tattoo of my, like, late husband who I, you know, was in a relationship with for, like, almost nine years have to do with that? Like, why would I want to be with someone who feels threatened or insecure by my late husband's likeness on my arm? Like, I think that was one of the weirdest things that I received. I definitely had some people acting as if I was, like, milking my husband's death. And I'm just like, I don't need to do that i've always been a sharer i've always been someone who shares my experiences i've been that person since i was like on live journal when i was 13 years old i've always been a sharer. i'm a writer i'm a storyteller that's just who i am this is just uh, that's happening in my life i'm not milking anything and also like i would love to milk anything else but my husband dying like i think that people are so have such like a like cynical brain rot around monetizing and monetization that they think that literally anything you do is just finding like some like craven way of profiting. I'm a storyteller. I'm always going to tell my stories. I've long been trying to finally write a book about relationships and sex and stuff. And my relationship with Rob is a big part of that. So I'm going to write my book proposal. I'm sure that when that comes out, people will be like, oh, here she goes like milking her husband's dad. And just like, okay, this has been in the works for like six years now, but sure, I'm just milking it. That's kind of the worst that I've gotten other than just kind of people just being nasty in general online but that's kind of the internet people just want attention and want you to try to feel bad it doesn't really work but (laughs) and i think
2: people equate getting attention with seeking attention or lifting up an issue with seeking personal attention for some sort of profit and there's there's a reason that your story has resonated with so many people I'm not a widow, but I. there are so many elements of your story that resonate with me. There are so many elements of your community coming together that are inspiring to lots of people. It seems tacky to be lashing out and questioning and policing you. I actually think uh, maybe a unsubtle a right turn back to the TV show. But one of the things that I think happens in this episode that hasn't yet happened is Jimmy's friends are finally holding him a tiny bit accountable. And he had to really fall to rock bottom, but he's been coasting as a parent. He's been coasting at work. Nobody's judging him the way you're describing your online community, judging you. And that could be a gender thing. That could be because he he has a a community. Uh, But I'm curious what the expectations for you have been and if they've shifted from people around you. Uh, like do you have tons of leeway is now the time to get away with anything
0: (laughs) oh it's kind of funny because there is this kind of ongoing joke of um with me and some of my friends it's like well if you want anything now now's the time to try to get it (laughs) like now's the time to try to get away with whatever you say it's like well i'm a widow so you can't you know now that that actually works in real life you know if anything i think i'm policing myself more than anything else i think that i'm really i mean Look, all my therapists for years have been like, actually, you're really hard on yourself. I'm being very hard on myself in this grieving process where I'm just like, why am I not able to do this right now? Why is it still hard for me to, like, cook? Why is it still hard for me to, like, clean? Why is it still hard for me to, like, do X, Y, and Z? And my friends are like, babe, your husband died, like, three months ago. You spent most of last year, like, living in a hospital. Like, you were pretty much a nurse. It's okay. And I'm like, and, you know, when, it's like when they put it that way, it's like, okay, yeah, but... And I think it has to do with, again, not to be, again, like we live in a society, but to be like we live in a society where like we, our culture does not really, just is not comfortable with sitting in grief. We like to wrap things up in a nice little bow. Oh, you, you know, you have the funeral, you have your little grieving period, and then you have to move the fuck on. Life moves on. I think that it's really hard not to internalize a lot of that. Um, it's really hard not to beat myself up over not making my own goals in the timelines that I thought I would at this point. Even though it's only been a few months, it still feels like, why aren't you better yet? Which is, like, a really kind of, like, if it was someone else talking to me about this, I'd be like, are you crazy? You know, it. I don't think I'm at a point yet where I'm... Um, doing something out of pocket, you know, where I need to have, you know, be held accountable for, you know, something yet.
1: You need to play that widow card more. I'm rooting for you. You can do it.
0: If anything, it actually comes out accidentally. Like widow privileges come out accidentally. I remember like maybe a month after Rob died, I was like at a bar. The guy who DJ'd my wedding was doing like a, doing like a set um, at this bar in the city. I was like a Sunday night and I was at the bar. I saw that the cocktails were so expensive. I was like, I'm here already. I like came all the way from Brooklyn. I'm here, whatever. And I was just like, I just accidentally trauma dumped on the bartender. I'm like, hi, my husband just died. And He's like, well, let's do some shots. And I'm like,
1: free shots. All right, I'll take it. I'm going to insist there is no reverse racism and there is no widow privilege. Like these things are the same if you believe one you have to believe the other and you heard it here first for sure but i mean part of what you're describing you know i think in relation to shrinking like you talking about the collective social desire to just move on like i also think it's very gendered like it's also Like with COVID, we saw people just not be able to comprehend the loss that's going on. And like, I think one of the things about this show that I do appreciate again, like, it's light, it's silly, it's like a little uneven. I enjoy it. I think the theme of like men kind of coming to terms with their feelings is well done. Like, We love seeing this with Harrison Ford. He has this whole other storyline like with like a grown daughter that who he wasn't in her life growing up. And like, he's coming to terms with that means. And like, I'm enjoying that for Harrison Ford. Like, I think it's a good use of his talents. And he very much embodies this like gruff masculinity where we would never imagine him like crying or doing weed gummies.
0: He has like a vulnerability here that's like really nice to see. I'm like, oh, okay. This is what you can do when you're not like, flying planes that you
1: shouldn't saving kidnapped people I don't know what does Harrison Ford do but um, and I also think that's happening with Jason Segel's character where you know over the arc of the first season at least they're kind of showing through the lens of his daughter I think pretty well what happens to the people around you when you just check out emotionally and I think the storyline with his daughter Alice is actually really an interesting one I think we've Move past the Bechtel test, I think, like in the discourse, but it's definitely like helping the show, you know, pass that test. Cause I think, you know, she's like a non sexualized young woman who has her own thoughts, who has her own like autonomy and process of grieving. And she's righteously angry at her father for checking out. I think that's like a good counterbalance to this show a little bit. Cause otherwise you just have like Jessica Williams who is just going to show up and be brilliant and they didn't have to do anything with her character for her to just go and kill that role. And then you have a weird neighbor whose entire life is you all. And that's it. So I think like this young woman character like is doing a lot of work. And I guess I'm curious for you, Ashley, like, are we all always grieving by ourselves, even if we're mourning together? Like, even if Alice's dad had been there for her more, like, would it have made a difference? Or does everyone kind of need to do their own thing?
0: This has been the most isolating experience in my life. I think next to being, you know, in this like kind of in that hospital setting with him and do, in being a caregiver, it's deeply isolating. Cause like, it, even when I'm talking to my other friends who are widows, every experience is different. One of my closest friends who was um widowed a couple of years before me, she also lost her husband to cancer. She was like seven, eight months pregnant when she lost her husband. So she went straight from that into being a mother very quickly. So she was in a very different, you know, headspace than I'm currently in right now. Every experience is different. And, you know, I can talk to my parents. I can talk to other widows. I can talk to my friends. I can talk to my friends who've lost people to cancer. It's just, it's, nothing is like your experience. I can talk to, you know, Rob's mom. I can talk to all these people. It's still... She lost a son. I lost a partner. It's just different. And I think they're all these little special brands of just like isolation. And I think that for me, I'm so grateful for community. But it's you really do kind of go on your own journey, your own path. Like there's no level of community is going to usurp that level of just like loneliness that you feel um, going through your own grief like that. And I like the little touches of him in the show talking to his wife like you know <laughs> the moment after he um sleeps with jessica Williams character, and he like immediately like, turns like the photo of her down like next and, uh, next to his bed of uh, his um wife down next to his bedside as if like she saw something that she shouldn't and he's like oh, okay like oh i like those little touches of like that and like when he like you know puts the you know puts the photo right side up and like has this conversation with her I find myself having little conversations with Rob all the time or just like when I'm like frustrated, I'm just like, Oh Rob, you know, I don't have like full on, like, I'm not talking like at length or anything, but you know, I write little things in my phone. Like, Oh, I'm remembering the time Rob and I did this or, you know, thinking about the time Rob said that, or the time we got into an argument about this. It's just like the little ways that you keep someone alive almost out of a paranoia, that you're going to like, not like you're ever going to forget them, but it's like you kind of do it like on impulse. Like I need to like remember these thoughts. I need to have these conversations with this person. Like I need to keep this line of communication alive. I liked seeing that in the show with him and also with Jessica Lane's character when she had, when she's like, yeah, I I talked to her about it. So she was okay with us sleeping together. And maybe it's just because, like I said earlier in the show, like because Rob and I talked about the fact that he wanted me to like, you know, find love again. I was like, yeah, Rob would also be totally, like, cool if, like, I, like, slept with one of his friends. I mean, I really be like, yeah, sure, whatever. Like, go for it. Like, I'm happy. But I understand why, like, there is all this anxiety and angst and stuff over it. Especially if, again, if you haven't had an opportunity to talk to your partner about that kind of stuff. Like, and... I can only imagine how much more isolating that feels if you're like not just just the normal isolation on top of the isolation and the guilt. And it's like, oh no, how, am I allowed to have sexual feelings? Am I allowed to even like have this or that? it's It's a maddening experience. It really is. You're hitting home with
2: that that you know you have such a unique experience and that you had some of these conversations. You knew not when, but that it was coming, which is a huge difference from the the show that we're using sort of as a jumping off point for a conversation. You sort of segued into this before we could ask you, but one of the things Laurie and I've been talking about since watching this show is the responsibility of holding up the memory or what is your lasting relationship with the person mm-hmm. who dies? And, you know, this show, I think does a really good job of centering a parent because, there's definitely a baked in responsibility to keeping that person alive and a shared memory and a shared relationship that goes on. But I think the the thing that really touched me about talking to the photo and the way uh, Gabby's character keeps mentioning that she talks to Tia as though Tia is still there, is that it's such a natural way of showing that the friendship is still there. The relationship is still there. The person has died, but that presence is still really big in their lives. And I'm wondering how you've thought, you know, you you talked a bit about your tattoo, but if you thought about, you know, your ongoing relationship with Rob and his memory and, and what sorts of obligation or what sense of comfort or relationship you still
0: feel with that? I mean, I feel a massive obligation to, you know, continue his legacy to continue, you know, I, I've, feel that through, like, you know, getting this tattoo in a very visible spot on my body where, like, you know, I can see it, but also others can see it. And if anyone wants to ask me about it, I tell them about this amazing person who was in my life. You know, I am going to, like, write this book about, you know, relationships and stuff like that, but he'll also be a part of that. I think that, you know, when, you know, knock on wood, everything goes well, but when I, like, go through IVF and when I have, like, our kid and everything, that'll be another kind of a continuation of his, like, legacy and his memory. And... God, I just wish a kid is just almost even half as smart as Rob, you know? It's just like little things like that are really important to me to keep his memory alive, not just through my own thoughts and through talking with, you know, their people. But like, I do want to emphasize that like talking to other people who also loved Rob is also one of my favorite ways of keeping him alive. Like, I encourage everyone who knew him, like if something comes up, with Rob, Like, if you have a Rob thought, like, let me know. Like, or if he, a lot of my friends have mentioned, you know, since he died, like, oh yeah, Rob was in my dream and I wanted to tell you about it. Like, that for me is like one of the most touching things that people can tell me about. Their dreams in which Rob visits them. And sometimes they're just like, yeah, Rob was healthy. Rob was, you know, just hanging out with me. And, you know, I started an Instagram account. I called shit, I'd show Rob, which was just kind of full of like memes and videos and articles and stuff that I would show Rob or that Rob would find interesting or, you know, things like that. It's just another way for me to kind of share the kind of person that Rob was and will continue to be in my life. I find a lot of power and value in that. Recently, I've gotten really into, like, um, Victorian, like, love, like, symbolics and stuff like that. Like, I think the Victorians were freaks in a lot of ways. But I think that the ways that they, like, you know, the kind of, like, subtle ways that they acknowledge, like, love for people was, like, really intense and beautiful. Like, the lockets that they would keep and how, you know, if you did some research recently... There's a lot of iconography of like birds and swallows and stuff. And I looked that up and it was, I think that the swallows represented like sending someone off somewhere and like hoping for their safe voyage or their safe return and things like that, which I think is like really beautiful and powerful. I'm looking at lockets that I can have like a photo of Rob or like a lock of his hair or something like that. Like I don't care if it's freaky, like anything that like continues on his memory or his legacy or whatever, like I'm about that. But also I'm a very sentimental person. So this is just very natural for me. For me, I just feel like it's an obligation. His life was cut short, and I feel like the best thing I can do is continue to not only like live up to like the values and things he cared about, but also just to like let people know about what an amazing person he was and be constantly reminded by the other people who loved him about you know how great the kind of impact he made on their lives. so. I don't know if that answers the question, but...
2: I think it does. I think it comes across. I mean, I just saw you repost some snippets of video. And I think one of the yeah. fa- factors of you being a young widow is you have a lot of social media content of your husband.
0: Oh, I have yeah. an insane number of photos and videos. And I definitely think I'm like a compulsive... like You know how there's like hoarders? I think I'm like a media hoarder, <laughs> like a digital hoarder, which is bad in its own way. Like when I tell people how many photos I have on my phone slash iCloud... They're always, like, embarrassingly off. If you guess right now, you will not guess it. Guess. How many do you think I have?
1: Thousands. I don't know.
0: I have over 300,000 photos on my phone. Oh, my God. Wow. They're not all Rob. I'm not that much of a freak. But, like, you know, I have tens of thousands of Photos and videos of, the, of us, of him, of the two. Like, and I will always be able to treasure those, you know? Yeah. I'll be able to look back on those about some random trip we took to Norway. I'll be able to show that to our kid. I'll be able to, you know, just have those forever. And that's another way of, like, you know, continuing that legacy. I'm always going to have. And also just, like, our text messages, the mm-hmm. dumb memes that we've sent back and forth to each other. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm always going to have, like, be able to archive that, you know? And that really matters uh-huh. to me, too.
1: Ashley, I feel like you've been like really generous you're opening up for me like sentimentality and i just like i'm into it like you're inspiring me to be like embrace the sentimental freak inside you know like i think that's really good
0: people are so embarrassed even to like take photos and like have i'm just like you will not regret that if like god forbid if your person like you know something bad happens like i'm so glad that i can just like on my iphone put in like April 2016 and just have like see like so many photos and videos of whatever the fuck we were doing in April 2016 and just like have those forever you know like I embrace that freakiness like I'm just like is it weird that I have like a that I like I cut off like a lock of like Rob's hair when he died like and you know I wear his wedding ring every day I just believe in honoring him and honoring you know it's just that's just who I am. And I can do that while still at some point, you know, maybe finding, an, you know, another relationship down the line or, you know, new love. I can still do that. But I will always, you know, have this love for Rob. He was my first boyfriend, my first partner, my first everything. So, you know.
2: That's such a beautiful note to maybe end the analyze this TV show section of the interview. But I think we, we as a culture, I think are embarrassed to embrace love, to talk about love, to be, we're, we're very judgmental, at least generationally, I think, you know, to we want to embrace aloofness and sarcasm. We hate earnestness. Yes. Earnestness yes, is earnestness.
0: cringe. Nothing will make you realize how stupid that is than losing someone. Like nothing mm-hmm. will make you feel like more like, wow, I really thought that this was like, this was goofy or this was like embarrassing. Like I am so out here putting all my like love on the line and all this kind of stuff. And that's just also just the kind of person I am. Rob was more reserved. You know, I don't know if Rob would like do a whole tattoo if I passed away, but that's fine. Like, that's just like, he loved me in his way and I'm loving him in my way. You know, we love each other very deeply and this all really sucks. And that's why watching this episode, like definitely like it was very tender for me. I do like that there is some depiction of young widows and young widowers in the media and just kind of seeing how they navigate life without it kind of being all soppy.
1: Cause yeah, yeah, it is
0: a lot of crying, a lot of feeling like shit, but then you have goofy stuff where, I don't know, you randomly hook up with someone or, you know, yeah. that kind of stuff too. Yeah. We hope
2: you'll come back on the show after your random hookup phase. Yeah. yeah there
1: you go. <laughs> the people need an update. Um, I love what you're saying about like death possibly as an antidote to cringe. So like wake up, like, like, no cap, live life to the fullest. Like, let's be out here being sentimental. That's an inspiration. We will end this episode with just a short Cringe Fire. And are you ready, Ashley, for this portion of the program? I'm ready. Okay. Cringe Fire 1. Is there another show that you are binging right now? No.
0: There isn't. And I really want to find one. I really want to watch The Last of Us, though.
1: OK, Pedro. We need more Pedro. OK, well, maybe our audience members can give you some recommendations. Is there like a mood or a vibe that you're going for in a show? You
0: know, I would think that I would want to watch something like lighthearted. But the last thing I watched was that like Sarah Lawrence cult documentary. So I think I'm going for like just dark shit, which is why I also want to watch The Last of Us.
2: That's uh, on brand because uh, in our yet to be taped intro for this section, I'm going to be talking about that cult documentary.
1: <laughs> Layla's alma mater. So.
2: Oh, I live two doors down from that house uh, 10 years before and I have a lot to say.
0: I think that because I was just quickly, because I'm in that same age room, like all those people are like a year below me in school. Like, I, I think I'm just like the MGMT song starting off the app. Ep- I was just like, oh, this is too close. This is too familiar. These are like my age mates. How did this happen? Like, yeah, that fucked me up.
2: Well, yeah, you get three full episodes to dissect. How did this happen?
0: <laughs> mm hmm. <laughs> Yeah.
2: Um, All right. So other than sex trafficking and cults, is there an issue in society or the world that you're
1: finding super cringy right now?
0: I think I find the fact that feminism is in its flop era being really cringe.
1: Elaborate or not. I feel like I know exactly what you mean.
0: (laughs) I could probably do a deeper dive on this sometime, but I feel like we're in the kind of overcorrection slash backlash era of like the sex positivity kind of stuff that was like, very popular during, like, the Tumblr era, like, of, like, the early 2010s, and now it's all just, like, I don't know, stay-at-home girlfriend content on TikTok and, like, ultra-paranoid shit, like, I don't like, there's no nuance, no nothing. Someone thought that I was saying, like, not all men because I said that not every single guy is obsessed with virgins and we shouldn't assume that that's, like, acceptable. Like, I don't know. It's, like, I'm, I don't know. I'm, I'm a little worried about some of the young the young people out there and their approaches to sex and relationships in society, I don't know.
1: It's all weird. It's upsetting. We do like a binge and a cringe in our opening and like Red Scare podcast was one of my earliest cringes. And also this podcast is kind of a re- reaction to like a bad calibration on the amount of sex positivity that we both feel feminism should have. So like there with you, this is gonna be a spinoff conversation. Is there an aspect of sex or sexuality that you would like to see better portrayed or portrayed at all in culture, media, literature?
0: I think that I want to see, and maybe this is because I'm writing about this, um, more content about young women who, who are virgins past the age of like 22 without it being like weird. And without it being like, I don't know, weird, neurotic religious type a weirdo type people i know i wasn't like that i just was like oh i haven't fucked yet weird <laughs> so like you know <laughs> you know i would love more portrayals like that because i don't really think we get it without again without the character being like some neurotic weirdo or hyper like you're so tight but yeah, yeah from yeah, the exactly ma- male like, point of view. Yeah, exactly. Like, so you know, I would I would like to see some more of that. And
2: final cringe fire question is do you have a favorite sex scene from film, TV, literature, media?
0: When I think of favorite sex scene, I think of a sex scene that's like really like alluring or really beautiful. And you know what the first thing that came up was actually a sex scene that was like the opposite of that. This is like really obscure, really random. And I just think it was really well done because it made me really sad. Are any of you guys fans of Skins, the TV show?
1: I know of it.
0: Okay, so there was a scene in the fifth season of Skins where this character, she likes to portray herself as someone who has had sex before. She is not. And she finally is pressured by her boyfriend to have sex for the first time and Okay, see that's what I mean by it's like not a beautiful scene, but I think that the way they portrayed her like anxiety and her like discomfort on her face was really well done and like sticks with me like all these years like over a decade later. It wasn't even like it wasn't a fun, beautiful sex scene. It was just a very kind of like raw, emotionally done, like very short, kind of just like it's not even like explicit at all. Cause these are like teen, these are portraying teenagers. But it just did a really good job of just portraying the kind of anxiety and discomfort, but her want to impress this guy. And for some reason, that sex scene really stands out to me. I don't know. Sex isn't always fun.
1: And it sounds like it was very woman-centered or like, it sounds like it was really in her perspective, which you don't often see.
0: Yeah, I think that there aren't enough like things from like teen girls that were like, without it being like, over the top and exploitative. It just was, it was very subtle in the kind of like, oh, she's not really like, this isn't really a great time for her, but she's doing this because she wants to impress this guy. That's what a lot of girls are pressured to do. that's
2: a great answer because it's it's a great scene, maybe not a great experience for the character.
0: No, but I think the way it it unravels is like well done and like, and tender and like makes me feel bad.
1: Sounds like a sex scene to me. <laughs> I don't
0: know. <laughs> like, the, the scene that makes me feel really sad about sex is the one that,
1: I, that immediately comes to mind. I mean, this is the thing about the sex positivity. Like, it doesn't have to be like, oh, that was so hot and perfect, and therefore we champion it. Like, that's not how human emotion works.
0: I mean, otherwise it would have been something, I'd say something from, like, the Americans.
1: Yeah. <laughs>
0: I don't know. I don't Remember know. when, like, the daughter walked in on them, like, do, oh,
1: whoo! Listen, and that's a show that my mom and I both watch. And I'm like, I know we don't watch it together, but we talk about it. And I'm like, I know what you're seeing, mom.
0: Chemistry <laughs> is so underrated and so rare. It helps that they actually started doing that off screen too. Exactly. Right.
1: You can, you can tell. Okay, Ashley, you have been a delightful guest. We so appreciate you. I'm so sorry for your loss. And I'm so grateful to you for just sharing this experience. It really makes a difference and it's touching so many people.
2: Thank you so and much think, for having me. And thank you for turning on its head what, you know, I think some people might assume would be a really somber conversation. I feel like we we touched on every emotion. I think we had some tears, but also a lot of laughs. And, and I feel Almost like I know Rob a little bit. And it's it's just really nice to hear you talk about him. And so refreshing and, and helpful to hear you share your experience. So thank you for sharing. And don't that ever means,
0: describe it as oversharing. That means a lot to me. Seriously, it really does.
1: Talk to you
0: soon, Ashley. Thank you. Thank
1: you. Thank you so much to our guest, Ashley Reese. You can find her on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at Offbeat Orbit. Our editor is Karen Y. Chan. Judith Walker created our logos and cover art.
2: DL Dallas Engram created our theme song, and you can find DL on SoundCloud. I also want to remind everyone we still have a Patreon. You should be a patron. Patrons get early access to our live events, they get early drops of our episodes. You get uh, key updates, lots of perks. Join us, Patreon backslash cringe watchers. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Cringe Watchers. And as always, thank you for cringe watching with us.